We're starting a new series. It's in the, the book of James. I'm going to read the first 18 verses of the first chapter. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man, that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his own high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. The sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Let's pray, shall we? Once again, Lord, as we have to, every time we read your word, we ask for your help. And Lord, as uh, those who have come to know you, we ask with confidence that your Holy Spirit can open our hearts and minds, show us your truth afresh. So Lord, please, come amongst us again as you promised you will do, and show us yourself in Christ's name. Amen. I vividly remember my first few weeks attending a church. <clears throat> you see, my family are not, not churchgoers, so all this church stuff was, was very foreign to me. I was a young man trying to understand what it meant to be a Christian. I was quite confused, often anxious, and uh, I was very rebellious. And I was quite soon introduced to a home Bible study, a small group that met in a home. I found it very, very forbidding. 
I was determined, though, that I wasn't going to take what they said without question. I argued a lot with them. See, some things never change. I noticed that uh, all these uh, Christians had one particular version of the Bible, which was much loved by those dreaded evangelicals. It was called the NIV, the New International Version. They said it was because it used modern words that they used it, but I have to say I was suspicious. So I'll tell you what I did. I went out and I bought another copy of the Bible which had modern words, which was the Catholic version, the Jerusalem Bible. I took that along for my Bible studies. I wasn't going to be hoodwinked. I remember going out and buying a commentary as well on the, the book that we were studying, and I specifically made sure that it wasn't an evangelical commentary. I reasoned that I would hear enough of that standard evangelical stuff from the group. I wanted to hear other opinions and make up my own mind. That was me. The first few weeks that I was in that group were vitally important for me. I still remember the passages that we studied in those weeks. They were these passages in James. And it was as I read this letter to James and as I saw other people sincerely and honestly trying to understand it and then put it into practice, that I in my own mind became clearer and clearer that this was real Christianity. This was real faith that these people were living out. And since those days, I've never looked back. It was more than a decade and a half ago that, and uh, though actually I've been preaching for most of that time pretty, pretty regularly, for about 15 years I've been preaching, I've never actually preached right through the letter of James. So uh, this book is a voyage of discovery or rediscovery for me, and I'm very excited, I must say, because the book is about real faith. That's why we call this series, How Real Is Your Faith? I saw that when I first uh, read it, and I want us to all see it afresh, whether for the first time or as with me, once again, the reality of real faith. We actually don't know for certain who James was. The universal tradition of the early church was that, the, that this is James, the brother of Jesus. Although we can't be absolutely certain, I don't think there's any good reason to doubt that tradition. The destination of the letter as well gives us a clue to its purpose. It's addressed to the, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Of course, the original 12 tribes that uh, were scattered were, the old, were Old Testament Israel. They had been scattered in the exile when they were driven out of their own land. But James is not actually addressing them. He's addressing the heirs of Israel's faith. As far as he's concerned, Christians are like those 12 scattered tribes. In fact, more than that, he says they are those 12 scattered tribes. They, he says, are now the true people of faith. But just like the people of faith of old, 
They are scattered. Aliens living in a foreign land. See, right at the start, James wants us to see that his letter is a letter of wisdom about how Christians can live out their faith in a hostile world. We'll see that again and again as we go through the series. The first thing, though, we need to, to, need to do is to, is to look at his, his introduction, which I think runs up to, uh, to verse 18, where we read to. What's he going to tell us in this introduction? Well, I think in many ways the second verse of his letter is perhaps the most important and the most radical thing he is going to tell us. He wants us to change our perspective on life if we're going to have real faith. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, he says, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, you cannot read this verse, can you, without realizing James is saying something pretty radical. Trials don't make us feel joyful, do they? How can he possibly say, consider trials pure joy? Now, some people think James is saying, what we should do is, is conjure up joy as a sort of an anesthetic. If, you're, if you feel down... It can help to play good music. It can help to go out to a club and dance the night away. It can help to have a good few drinks. Well, as they suggest, in the same way, perhaps James is saying, submerge your miserable feelings by praising God and being joyful. But James is not saying that, is he? He says, consider it pure joy. That's a very important word, consider it's often used in a context where our initial reaction might be one thing, but on sober reflection, we come to quite the opposite conclusion. So James is not saying manufacture joy as a sort of spiritual alcohol to dull the pain. He's saying quite the opposite. He's saying think carefully about your trials and then you will discover pure joy. Now, some people get that far in their thinking, but they still, I think, fall short of what James is saying. They read him as if he's saying, I know life has lots of trials at the moment, but what you need to do is to consider your eternal destiny and all the joy that there is in store for you, and uh, then you will be able to survive this time of trial. And to be honest, I think that's the way I would have put it in the past, but it's actually not a fair reading of what James says here. He's not actually saying that we will have joy despite our troubles. He's saying something far more radical than that. He's saying if we think about it, we will have joy because of our troubles. Well, that's very, very challenging, isn't it? If you've known real difficulty, painful times in your life, 
I wouldn't blame you if you wanted to uh, shut this letter to James right at the beginning on the second verse. Walk out of the church, perhaps, if you had the courage. Didn't know that everyone would watch you doing it. I mean, it's possible to cope with advice about our troubles which says drown your sorrows, isn't it? I mean, it's possible to steel ourselves, to survive our troubles because of the prospect of joy in the future. But isn't it a crazed masochist who says, consider it pure joy when you face trials? But that's what he says. To understand, James, I think we must then, first of all, try to understand from his perspective what those trials produce. Verses 3 and 4. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. First of all, he says there is testing of our faith. In other words, faith that has never known adverse circumstances, never been assaulted by doubt, never been put through the mill, he says, is hardly faith at all. Like a muscle that's never been used, it, it will be atrophied and virtually useless. Faith, he says, is only faith when it is exercised in the midst of difficult circumstances. And then he says that that tested faith develops perseverance. That word means, um, means, means more actually than just keeping going. It means a patient, solid, strong determination to see a purpose through. Yeah. To put it in animal terms, it means being a cart horse rather than a racehorse. Now racehorses get lots of glory, don't they? Everyone loves them for a moment, but actually, in reality, most racehorses lose money for their owners, and only a few megastars in the racing world make it to old age. Most racehorses end up in a can of pedigree chum before they're 10 years old. Cart horses, though, can plough fields for years and years and years, and they are far, far stronger than a thoroughbred. Their solid work over their lifetime can pr pr produce perhaps tens of tons of food. They're strong and reliable and productive. James says, a tested faith produces a reliable powerhouse of a person. And that perseverance, he says, if it is allowed to, will make us mature. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, he says. You can't short-circuit that. A blacksmith can't put a, 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 an iron rod into a furnace for a second and expect to leap, it to leap out as a perfectly shaped horseshoe. A doctor can't induce a birth after a few months of gestation and expect to have a healthy baby. A, te a teacher can't send a teenager off 
to a university with no A-levels and expect that teenager to come out with a good degree. Maturity only comes with solid, patient perseverance. That, says James, is why trials, rightly understood, can be a source of pure joy. Now, we must be clear that what he's not saying, he's not saying you will enjoy your trial. A trial is not a trial if it is enjoyed. He's not saying the pain will cease. He's not saying the sadness will disappear or the disappointment that we feel in this circumstance will be no more. But he is saying you can't produce gold without putting ore in a furnace. You can't build better houses without leveling the slums in the first place. You can't produce a responsible adult without exposing them to the rigors of the real world. You can't do it. And he says, if we can only see it, our maturity is far, far more important than the troubles that we face now. Because, you see, our trials will one day be no more than a distant memory. Even if they last all our lifetime, even if they completely debilitate us, turn our lives upside down, on the surface of it they are nothing but misery, they will one day be no more, of no more significance, they will not be a factor to us. But the qualities in us that those trials have produced will be very real still. Our maturity, you see, is one thing in us which is not passing. Our completeness is not irrelevant because the Bible is quite clear that our preparedness to meet Christ now is something that has eternal consequences in eternity. In one sense, all Christians are equal in heaven, but in another sense, there are degrees of reward and blessedness in heaven. The Bible's quite clear about that all over the place. And James says, when we consider that, when we consider what these difficult circumstances in our life are creating in us, then we will start to realize through our trials God is creating something which is eternally, incomparably priceless in us. And there will be joy. So why do the trials of Christians so often not produce that? That's what's in your mind, isn't it? That's what's in my mind. Now, why do I meet Christians who actually have become embittered by their trials? Why do I meet people who say that they've actually lost their faith because of some personal calamity? Why do trials actually seem to mar or stunt or actually even abort so many young faiths? rather than grow them onto maturity? That's the question, isn't it? 
Now, James says to us one thing that's very important. Trials fail to produce maturity because our faith is unrealistic. Verses 5 to 18 are an appeal for realism. It's going to be repeated again and again throughout the letter. So uh, I want just to sketch in what he's saying in uh, these 13 verses, and we'll fill them out over the weeks to come. First of all, he says, we must have a realism about our understanding. Let me put it, let me put it in another way. The first error that we uh, uh, so often have in our minds is that we can understand everything that's going on in the world simply by looking at the world, simply by what we see. James is very conscious of that. Verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. You see, James is well aware that we will not accept his words about joy coming through trials if we only look at this world. Perhaps the great error that has dogged the Western world for the last 200 years. We think that just by better science, better sociological analysis, better medicine, we're going to make people whole and content and joyful. Now, I don't think there's much doubt, actually, in the world today that that theory is discredited. It's in, in ruins. We do not have a more joyful world even if there have been great advances. Our own understanding, you see, on its own, just by looking at this world, will never bring the sort of wisdom that leads to joy. We need to ask God to open our eyes, to help us to gain wisdom, to help us to understand how there can be joy through trials. And James assures us, he gives generously. But he says, that asking of God, that opening ourselves up to God, must not be a casual thing. He calls us, as he puts it, to believe and not doubt. Because God's wisdom is a whole package. We can't choose to believe what's immediately attractive about what God tells us and choose to doubt the more challenging things. God's calling us to, to believe a total view of time and eternity. And it's that wisdom in its entirety which leads to joy, he says. I think that's one of the biggest causes of disappointment among Christians. They believe part of the message, but they think they are free to doubt another part. They believe that God forgives me has a wonderful plan for my life, for instance. But uh, they say, I, I can't quite believe that God's going to allow, allow trials and difficulties to enter my life. 
So they open themselves up to, to disappointment. In fact, uh, if we separate and choose what we believe and what we will doubt about God's revelation, we'll find that in fact the whole thing falls apart. We will become, as James says, like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the winds. More poignantly, perhaps, we will become hypocritical Christians who cultivate a sort of double think. You know, we praise God for his goodness on Sunday and uh, bury those, those feelings that just well up and on us, uh, in us on Monday and we curse him. James says it's being double-minded, unstable in all we do. We need to be realistic in our understanding, says James, about our understanding. We will not understand this world simply by looking at what we see. We will only understand. We will only gain true wisdom by seeking God's wisdom. And then joy will flow. Secondly, he says in verses 9 to 12, we need to be realistic about our circumstances too. James lived in a church, which is like ours actually, with quite significant inequalities between rich and poor. And he speaks about it. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. The one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. The sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls, its beauty is destroyed, and so on. See, it's so easy to equate our trials, especially our, our personal circumstances, our station in life, with God's attitude to us and with our intrinsic worth, isn't it? James turns that understanding on its head. He says, you may have humble circumstances in this world, he says, but you're precious to God. You have the most exalted status with God. He says, you who feel proud, you may have exalted status in this world. But remember, you are absolutely leveled at death with everyone else. Now, Karl Marx, who um, was rigorous in his atheism, said that this was precisely his problem with Christianity. In his view, poor people were being duped with a false sense of satisfaction with their poverty. And rich people, he said, are getting away with murder. He, he called religion famously the opiate of the people. Because James, James he said, uh, and, uh, and other new, passages, uh, new Testament passages are trying to drug us into insensibility. But actually, James is not, not doing that. He's doing completely the opposite. He's trying to wake us up to see reality. What drugs us, he says, what closes our eyes is a concentration only on this life. Now, if, if this life has dealt us a bad hand, then we cannot believe that God has eternal riches for us. Open your eyes, says James. He has. Or perhaps we revel in the delights and pleasures of this life. We forget that one day we will have to stand naked before our Maker. Open your eyes, he says. 
then you will have a true perspective on this world. We need to be realistic about our personal circumstances. Third thing we need to be realistic about is our hearts. Verses 13 to 15. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Here's a classic area in which we need to change our perspectives. Most people, in their inmost thoughts, think that their hearts are fundamentally good, don't they? What their heart wants them to do must be right. Morality these days is, to, is defined in what our heart tells us. When as, when as Christians then, we discover that we are struggling with temptations and difficulties, it's very easy in that sort of atmosphere to turn around and say, this must be your fault, God. I was getting along okay until you introduced these temptations into my life. But you see, that grossly underestimates the, the corruption in our hearts. God allows trials, partly, in fact, to show us that corruption. He is not introducing something new in us. So he is not responsible for that temptation. He is exposing our evil desires, as James calls it as a warning to us. Now, if we persist, though, in this, this idea that our, our hearts are somehow intrinsically just, it can lead us down a very dangerous path. I'm angry with you, God, because you brought this trial on me. You've created this anger in me. I'm troubled by this persistent temptation, God, which you have put into my heart. And then from that self-justification, we allow those sins to gain ground with fatal consequences. At first it seems fine, says James. First it's just like the conception of a baby. Not much changes instantly. We persuade ourselves that our sinful desire is not too bad. But just as surely as a birth follows a conception, so sin follows the nurturing of that desire, he says. Desire gives birth to sin. Did you see that in verse uh, 15? And again, this sin, like a new baby in the household, causes a bit of a disturbance in us uh, initially. But soon we become adjusted to it. Part of the family. We nurture it from its earliest infantile developments into a, into a fully developed habit, which is just part of us. Sometime later, says James, like a grown-up daughter, it's ready to reproduce itself. 
We eagerly await the grandchildren, he says. When it is full grown, it gives birth, he says. But the grandchild is something terrible. It's death. Sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Be realistic about your heart, says Janus. Don't kid yourself into thinking that the evil that uh, struggles inside you has any other origin but yourself. Because if you do that, if you deny your sinfulness, he says, it leaves you wide open to embracing all those evil desires, which in turn will lead you into sin which in turn, he says, if nurtured, will lead you to spiritual death. It happens. I've seen it. It's terribly painful. A sin which is not battled against, which is not recognized as from the evil within our own heart, is like a time bomb. One day it'll blow us out of the water. Be realistic about your heart, says James. And finally, in this introduction to his letter, he says, be realistic about God. That's been the subtext of everything he's said up to now, but he brings it out into the open. Verse 16, don't be deceived, my brothers, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. It's easy to be, de to be deceived, isn't it, when life's a struggle? I know that. The fact is, says James, God gives good gifts. This is a confusing world. It's easy to forget that. But that is the truth, he says. We shouldn't be deceived. As if he wants to remind us of one solid proof of that. He reminds us of what God has done in our hearts if we are Christians here this morning. Verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. He's talking about conversion. He's saying we heard the truth of the gospel. We were, we were born anew. If you've not had that experience yet, if, you, if, if for you, verse 18, is not personally your experience, then you will find it quite possible to shrug your shoulders and say, James is not realistic. James is not realistic about uh, our ability to understand the world. We can understand it perfectly well without God. He's not realistic about our true circumstances. What we are now is what we are. It's not realistic about our hearts. All this Christian insistence on the evil that flows from within our hearts is an illusion. It's not realistic about God. It's possible to say all of that if you haven't had that new birth experience. But says James, if you have, 
if God has shown you the truth of the gospel, if God has brought you to life, this new life that no one can explain fully until you've experienced it, if God has, uh, has promised that you are like the first fruits, like the first bit of the harvest of goodness that he is going to achieve in this world, if that is your experience, then no matter how much we struggle, we cannot deny what he's saying is the truth in these first 17 verses. It may not be fully part of your life yet. You may not really have come to terms with it yet. But it's the truth, isn't it? We know it. We cannot fully understand this world unless we have God's wisdom, unless we have wisdom from outside about eternity. We should not be deceived by the particular circumstances that God has given us right now. No, from God's perspective, he has quite a different view of who we are. We should not be deceived into thinking that our hearts are fundamentally good and therefore blame God or someone else. Now we know the evil wells up from within us. We should not be deceived about God himself. We know in our hearts, if we've been born again, that he does give us good gifts. God, you see, wants our joy. That's what James is saying. He wants our joy. God gives us good and perfect gifts for our joy. Even the trials that we face, says James, when we consider then, we realize are for our joy. Because they can produce in us maturity, which is more precious than anything else in the world. He says you will be mature, not lacking anything, complete. That is infinitely more precious than the difficulties we face. Don't walk out of here thinking that is rubbish. Didn't work for me. I'm not interested. The barrier to our joy is never our trials. Still less is it God. The barrier to our joy is our lack of realism that James wants to give us here. We're going to be talking about real faith over the next few weeks. That, in a sense, has just introduced us to the subject. Come back over the next few weeks. In fact, right over the summer, the series is going to go. See what James has to say. Let's pray. Lord, uh, to be honest, we think we are realistic about our lives and the world. And yet, when we look at this world from James's perspective, suddenly we realize how often we are looking through blinkers. We are short-sighted. Please, Lord, open our eyes. 
Help us to uh, read your word in such a way that we have real faith. Please, Lord, send us out of here with a thirst and a hunger and a determination to have real faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.